It was uh, Benjamin Franklin who in 1789 wrote a letter to his friend stating, our new constitution is now established. Everything seems to promise it will be durable. But in this world, nothing is certain except death and taxes. We all know that quote. But Franklin would have known it as well as anyone having worked on forming a new government. He would have understood how necessary taxes would be for any civilized society, for it to function. In fact, every nation, going back as far as we have written history, has had some form of taxation in place in order to pay for common social good and agreed upon national needs or functions of society. In the earliest days, it took certain forms, particularly in the corvée or corvée, which is a kind of forced labor where the governments would have demanded certain number of days or weeks of labor on the part of the peasants who had no monetary resources to pay, so they would have to pay in time and in sweat. But they would give their, their efforts to the government as a way of supporting its services and helping it accomplish its functions. In fact, in the ancient records, in the Egyptian records, the word for labor is synonymous with the word for taxation because that is the way that governments would collect their taxes in those days. If it wasn't in the form of some sort of forced labor, we know that Pharaoh from the earliest days claimed 20% of all wheat harvest for himself and for his administration, and so he would levy that tax on an annual basis during the harvest time. When the Egyptian empire gave way to the Persian empire, we know that among all of their 20 or 30 satrapies, which were overseen by bureaucrats known as satraps, Uh, They would levy taxes at varying rates across all of these satrapies based on whatever the needs were in that local administrations, normally somewhere in the range of 20 to 30 percent. And of course, eventually the Roman Empire uh, gave uh, its own form of this uh, tax system. They levied a tax of anywhere from one to three percent on individual incomes which were collected in each district. But of course, that was very hard to verify incomes in those days. Uh, It was difficult to validate and difficult to collect. In fact, the famous economist Adam Smith wrote that good taxes meet four criteria. They are proportional in terms of abilities to pay. They're certain and not arbitrary. They're payable in ways that are convenient to taxpayers, and they're cheap to administer and collect. Well, the Roman system was almost none of those things. It was incredibly difficult, incredibly complex, and so they created a kind of auction system where someone would come in and bid on a tax territory, and uh, having won the auction, they would pay up front what was the estimated tax for their territory, and then in turn were given the legal right by all means possible to collect those or reimburse themselves for those expenses out of the people. It doesn't matter, though, what the form was or what the government was or whatever it was. We know that there has always been taxation anywhere there is civilized society. There's always been 
a need for funding the functions of the government. Of course, in as much as there's always been taxation, there's always been resistance to it. There's always been people who resented it, always been people who fought back against it. Many, as a matter of fact, have viewed taxation, maybe even claimed taxation, as some sort of formal theft or some violation of fundamental property rights, that the government had no right to their property or their money. It's a form of tyranny, and some people would even say a form of slavery. This kind of form of extreme libertarianism that claims that all governments and all government protections and benefits could somehow be replaced by private alternatives, all the way down to private police services that could be replaced, I mean, excuse me, police services that could be replaced with sort of uh, private volunteer security forces or even military that could be replaced with contractors. I don't know how that would operate. I think all of it is uh, really incredibly naive as to human nature and, and fundamental principles of society, not to mention divine sovereignty. Because we're told in Scripture that governments were put in place not only by the sovereignty of God, but by the wisdom of God. In other words, he understood that for any society to function, it had to function with some sort of uh, overseeing authority in government. And so we're told in Scripture, God establishes these. And not only that, we're told that he establishes the governments with the authority to levy taxes because it only makes sense that if they're going to function, they're going to have to levy some sort of fee against that. And so we can say with true and uh, clear authority from Scripture that governments are established by God and taxes are established by God. Hasn't stopped people, however, from framing their rhetoric over and over again against all systems of taxation. Most of the time, framing it in some sort of moral philosophy, as if taxes are immoral and the greater the tax, the higher the immorality. Or if they aren't framing them in moral philosophy, they're framing them in religious terms. They frame religious arguments against taxation. Now, all that sort of feeds into where we are today in Matthew's gospel. In Matthew chapter 22, as we come back to our study of this great gospel, we find an encounter between Jesus and his opponents that erupts over this very issue of taxation. These opponents of Jesus were trying to drag him into a a uh, sort of lively debate, a perpetual debate, it would seem, over the issue of taxes. They were trying to leverage what is a common frustration of people over the issue of having to pay tax and get Jesus to entangle himself in some sort of political scandal that would ultimately be his undoing. But in spite of all their efforts, what we see here is once again the wisdom of our Savior who upends their schemes and exposes what is essentially their self-centered pretense framed in the way of debate about taxes. He turns their questions back on them and exposes flaws, uh, not just in their assumptions about taxes, but their assumptions about God and about government. 
This is what Matthew tells us in verse 15. It says, the Pharisees, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you're not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. This is obviously a a question about taxation, and particularly in this situation, the poll tax. The poll tax was one that was paid on a regular basis from a census. If not annual, every, every few years, Jews would be required to go back to their hometown, their birthplace, and they would have to register with the government. And at that point, they would be required to pay this tax. In fact, the word here for tax is the Greek word kensus, from which we get the word census. It was all bound up in this, in this accounting of everyone, and everyone had to pay this tax, and the tax amount was typically paid with denarii, a handful of denarii had to be paid in this Roman currency. Now, for many Jews, this was offensive because the denarius was not only the currency of the occupying forces, that is to say it was Roman currency, it was minted by them and in some ways represented their authority and power, but particularly on the coin itself was an image of Caesar and on the inverse of the coin was an inscription that which says Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of divine Augustus. In other words, there was an implicit claim on the coin that Caesar was God. This, of course, was blasphemous for any Jew. Blasphemous not only because of the claim, but blasphemous because the scripture itself had uh, prohibitions against idols and images of gods. And so to carry around this coin uh, for them was to, in some ways, uh, uh, carry around an image of uh, something that represented a violation of their law, the, 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 the Ten Commandments, which told them to have no other gods before them and to have no idols. Now, this whole issue had been around for a while. In fact, um, It was in 6 AD that a certain man named Judas of Gamaliel, uh, of of Galilee, I should say, Judas Gamaliel of Galilee, that stirred up a rebellion in Israel over just this very issue. Because Israel had been uh, taxed that year for the first time in a long time. In fact, uh, Julius Caesar had abolished the tax system because it was so corrupt and it was so abused and people all over the empire were complaining about it. It had been abolished in about the year 30 BC, but reinstituted the same year that Israel was made a province of Rome in the year 6 AD. 
And it was in this year that this man Judas led a revolt among the Jews, claiming that to pay this tax to Rome amounted to an admission of slavery to Rome. And so, claiming that it was both illegal and ungodly, he led a whole slew of people who refused to pay and took up arms against Rome, which led to a bloody, massive revolt that was put down by the Roman, par, uh, Roman army in a powerful way. And according to the um, historian Josephus, it undermined the very foundations of their society, their government, and ultimately sowed the seeds of their downfall in 70 AD. Josephus actually writes of this rebellion. He says, all sorts of misfortunes sprang from these men who led the rebellion, and the nation was infected with this doctrine, that is the doctrine that they shouldn't pay taxes. The whole nation was infected with this doctrine to an incredible degree. One violent war came upon us after another. We lost our friends who used to alleviate our pains. There were also great robberies and murders of our principal men. He goes on to conclude that this revolt over the taxes, he says, quote, was done in pretense, indeed for public welfare, but in reality for the hopes of personal gain to those who instigated the rebellion. And from the rebellion arose seditions, he says, and from them murders of men, which sometimes fell on their own people by the madness of these men toward one another, while their desire was that none other than their own political adversaries might never gain advantage over them, end quote. In other words, Josephus says this whole thing was a ruse. Uh, it was a claim about some sort of injustice and taxation, but it was really all about them, about their power, about their personal gain, their personal wealth. And it led to nothing but sedition and rebellion and ultimately destruction of our nation. Well, these Jews now, 27 years after that rebellion, are coming to Jesus in the temple and hoping to draw him into this same controversy. Maybe lure him into making some sort of self-incriminating remark, which on one hand would offend the Romans if he said something against the taxation system and they would come and they would arrest Jesus and therefore eliminate the problem for the Pharisees. Or on the other hand, it would lure Jesus into affirming the taxation system, which would offend the Jews and alienate many of his followers. And he would lose his status. Whatever it was, their ultimate goal was to secure for themselves the place of the spiritual superiors and the political sort of clout that they cherished. But, as we've seen so many times, powerful truth on the lips of our Savior absolutely unmasks them in their religious show. Just to remind you, this is all taking place the same day that we've been looking at now for several weeks. All these, all these parables, all of these controversies, all these questions, all taking place on Wednesday of the Passion Week. Jesus' final week of public ministry. 
the final few days before he was crucified. In fact, two days from this, he will be crucified. But here he is in the temple on his final day of public ministry, debating and arguing and uh, doing duel with these opponents. And they're all here trying to do whatever they can to bring an end to his popularity. He had come into Jerusalem to great acclaim, and they were all fearful that he might launch some sort of movement that would overthrow them. So they're determined to do everything they can to oppose him. And here, in verses 15 through 22, they devise this scheme that they're sure will finally catch him. It'll undermine him. It'll reestablish their popularity with the people. But in reality, what happens here is that their plot gets twisted up. There are three turns, if you will, to their scheme or to their plot that happen here that ultimately end up in an embarrassing display of their own self-centered pretense. And it all begins in verse 15 with what we could just call the plot to deceive with flattering words. Matthew uses the word then, uh, sort of a a temporal word, a, a word of time. He says then... The Pharisees went out and plotted how to entangle him. That, that's, not, that's not indicating that this was initially or, or uh, specifically in response to verses 1 through 14. That was a parable, you remember, of a great wedding feast. He's not saying that it was directly in response to that, but this was really in response to everything that had been unfolding. This is the next sequence of things that unfolded during this week as they were responding to what was the growing popularity of Jesus. It was at that time and in response to everything else that was going on and all the ways that he was challenging their authority that they made this plot. And the gist of their plot was to get him to trip himself up with his own words. They wanted to do it in a way that wouldn't implicate them directly. They wanted to do it in a way where Jesus would stumble on himself. And so they devised this scheme where they would send some of their disciples. These would have been men who were studying under the Pharisees, under the rabbis, but they weren't yet ordained, and so they didn't necessarily have the, the robes and the garb and all of the sort of trappings that went along with ordination. They wouldn't have been readily or easily recognized as being of the party of the Pharisees. They would have been dressed, we might say, in ordinary clothing. But they send them in pretending to be interested and curious questioners, interested and curious bystanders. In fact, Luke actually says they sent them in as, quote, spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something that they said. This is amazing. These religious leaders who are so bent in their hatred against the righteousness of Christ and everything he stood for. They're so angered by his confrontation of their sin that they're willing to scheme at this level, even leading their own disciples into what is clearly a deceptive plot against Christ. But you have to understand, this is the way some people view religion. This is the way some people approach religion. 
It is all about the show. It's all about the pretense. They're willing to do this kind of open plotting. Can you imagine going to a religious sort of group, a religious meeting, and your teachers are there instructing you how to pull off some massive ruse like this? This is what hypocrites do, though. This is what hypocrites do. They openly and uh, hypocritically devise ways to continue playing their games. They'll talk about it among themselves, about how they will, <clears throat> they will go and participate in whatever kind of activity, whatever kind of religious service, and just put on the show. That's basically what these guys were doing. And part of the show, by the way, was they were going to bring along some of the Herodians. Who were those? Those were people who obviously were supporters of Herod. Herod was the Idumean king who had been uh, put in place originally uh, to be the king over Israel. He was looked at as an outsider, not just an outsider, but as a paganizer. He was a friend of Rome, and he was one who welcomed all of these Roman sort of uh, 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 social and cultural elements to infiltrate Israel. And so he, he would say, we, we would use the term secularize. He was secularizing their nation. He was drawing them into sort of a polluted cultural experience. He was the one who was uh, opposing the, the things of God in that sense. And so uh, Herod represented uh, what was the... Uh, the polluting influence of society. So the Pharisees stood against him. They weren't uh, supporters of the original Herod. They weren't supporters of his children who inherited his power from him. But there was within Israel's society a certain group of people who embraced all of this uh, paganism. They embraced the secularism. They embraced uh, all of the lewdness and all of the idolatry and all of the greed and everything else that came with it, they welcomed the Romans into their midst and they were known as Herodians. And here, these Pharisees who had been long-standing opponents and enemies of the Herodians actually link arms with them. They link arms with them. Paul will later ask, what fellowship has light with darkness? And what communion has Christ with the devil? These were unequally yoked partners. And by their willingness to use these very people, these Herodians, they were exposing where their real hearts were. These were compromised Religious men. They wanted the appearance of religion, but in their heart, they weren't sincere in their pursuits. They hid behind a mask. Everything they did was a mask. When they showed up to religious services, it was a mask. They were different people when they were with others than when they were in private. And their intentions were always veiled. Their goal was to do evil, but never let anyone know about it. Uh, Jesus will actually say of these people later on in verse, chapter 23, verse 5, they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. That's, it was all about being, being appreciated by men, all about putting on a show for men. So they come to Jesus 
with these Herodians, with this pretense of interest. And they say to him in verse 16, Teacher, we know that you are true and you teach the way of God truthfully and you don't care about anyone's opinion and you're not swayed by appearances. So they come with this pretense of loving the truth and praising the truth, even praising Jesus. They come with this hypocritical language on their lips. They're willing to say all kinds of things about, about Jesus, the same, same way they say all kinds of wonderful things about God, when in reality, they don't really believe any of this stuff. This is just brazen duplicity and brazen hypocrisy. But this is the lens through which they see the world. They assume that because this is the way they live their life, that this is the way everyone lives their life. You talk to them, I've talked to so many people like this through the years, and when you are uncovering the duplicity in their life and really beginning to expose it, they almost always retreat to the same place. Well, pastor, everybody does this. Everybody has these secrets Everyone is living this duplicitous life. This is the lens through which they see the world. They just believe that because they're living this lie, everyone else is living this lie, and everyone else is playing the game. And so they show up with these flattering words for Christ. They're willing to do all of this. Well, it takes us to the next twist in this little scheme where Jesus actually turns their plot back against them. We see in verse 18 his perception into their hypocritical hearts. Verse 18 just simply says he was aware of their malice. Now, don't read that necessarily and assume that that's some supernatural awareness. There's no reason for us to conclude that Jesus needed supernatural insight to see what was going on with these men. Uh, 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 Josephus didn't need any supernatural insight to realize when Judas was leading a rebellion against taxation that he was doing it all out of personal, selfish motives. And Jesus didn't need an incredible amount of insight to see these people coming and posing religious questions when they're standing shoulder to shoulder with the Herodians. So it's just simply his wisdom to recognize here that these people were trying to tempt him or Put him to the test, which is what he asked him. Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? He wasn't fooled by it. He wasn't fooled by any of it. He saw through their hypocrisy like so many others. He knew their religious questions about the law weren't really about the law. Because if they were really interested in what the law said, if they were really interested in what pleased God and what God's word said, guess what? They wouldn't be living a lie. They wouldn't be showing up in this kind of deception. If they were genuinely interested in pleasing God, they wouldn't wouldn't be behaving with this kind of duplicity. They weren't interested in what God wanted. They were just interested in raising questions that would serve their selfish pursuits. People do this all the time, you know. They raise questions when it's convenient for them. They raise moral questions, not because they really want moral answers. They raise moral questions because they want to hide. They want to hide behind the pretense 
of wanting the truth or they want to hide behind what they believe are the implicit inconsistencies of God's truth. But really, their goal isn't truth. Their goal is to justify their own indulgence and to hide their own pride. And they did it with flattery. You know, Jeremiah talked about this in his own day, Jeremiah chapter 9, how he lived in Israel society that was absolutely plagued by this. And he says in Jeremiah 9 verse 4, Let everyone beware of his neighbor, put no trust in any brother. For every brother is a deceiver, and every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. Everyone deceives his neighbor. No one speaks the truth. They've taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves committing iniquity. He's, He's saying they actually train themselves to be good at lying. They taught themselves to do this. goes on to say, heaping oppression upon oppression, deceit upon deceit, they refuse to know me, declares the Lord. So, so it was through their lies and through their deceptions that they pushed God away. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I will refine them and test them. For what else can I do because of my people? Their tongue is a deadly arrow. It speaks deceitfully with his mouth. He speaks peace to his neighbor, but in his heart, he plans an ambush for him. This is exactly what these men were doing. And Jesus knew it. He knew it. And he wasn't going to let it stand. The psalmist says transgression speaks to the ungodly in his heart. There's no fear of God before his eyes. For it flatters him in his own eyes concerning the discovery of his iniquity and the hatred of it. The words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. The unbeliever believes that he can go on with this kind of flattery and never be found out. He convinces himself of it. He doesn't even see the decay. He's lied and lied and lied so much he no longer sees the decay that's taking place in his own heart. All the world is a mask now for him. And Jesus perceives it. That brings us really to the final twist, the main twist here of this whole sort of scheme as Jesus completely turns their question back on them and exposes how little they really understand of God and of his ways. And he does it in verses 19 through 22 by talking to them about the payment that they owe not only to government, but to God. He asked them in verse 19, show me the coin for the tax. They brought him a denarius and he asked them the obvious question, whose likeness and inscription does it have? And of course they answer Caesar's. Which at this point, they might be thinking, well, you know, now we have him. He's, now we, we see where he's going. He's going he's gonna to fall right into our trap. But with incredible insight, he silences them with the simple statement of truth. Then, or in that case, since it has Caesar's name and picture on it, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. 
That word renders interesting. It's the word apodidomy. It's basically a word for giving something in return. It could literally be translating giving back. Give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. It implies an obligation or a debt, a repayment of some sort. And his point here is that you actually have an obligation, a moral obligation to pay back to the government which provides for you. And all of this by God's ordained decree. He has established governments. He set up governments for the purpose of providing such benefits. And when they provide the benefits, you are obligated to pay for them. Those who benefit from the state are under obligation to the state. This was Caesar's money. He minted it. He provided for it. And he provided for all the other benefits that they enjoy. And now it represents in Jesus' estimation an exchange of goods for services. Services that were provided by the Roman economy, which in that situation were some of the most advanced the world had ever seen. They built roads that to this day are still passable. They built aqueducts, which brought fresh and clean water into cities for the first time ever. They had some of the most advanced technology that was only possible because of the collection of taxes. They enjoyed the stability of the Pax Romana, which brought a stability and a certain level of peace throughout the entire civilized world. And so this was an appropriate thing for them to do. In fact, many of these uh, Jews were, I'm sure, happy enough to take advantage of the roads that were built and to drink from the aqueducts that had been constructed, not to mention to enjoy the benefits of a medium of exchange which came through the Roman currency. They could go anywhere in the world and they could buy things with Roman currency. They, they did that, and by, as evidence of that, when Jesus asked them to produce a coin, guess what? They had one in their pocket. They clearly didn't object to having the money that was printed by Rome. They just objected to giving some of it back. This is the way people are all the time who complain about taxes. They complain while at the very same time utilizing the very benefits that have come to them by the taxes. They will use the roads. I don't see very many of them jettisoning their car and cutting their own trails because they refuse to walk on the asphalt that's been poured by the government. I don't see very many of them shutting off the water to their house. I don't see very many of them completely abandoning the use of common currency. They live in these civilized societies by the benefit of the government's gods established, and yet they complain and complain and complain about these very benefits, or about the governments, I should say, that provide them. Jesus says it's appropriate. You pay back. You apodidomy. You give back. You remit this payment to Caesar because it's Caesar's. Because he and the government that he represents, the administration he represents, 
has provided all these things for you. You say, well, that, that, uh, that might sort of work, except sometimes the government takes more money than it needs. Or, in some cases, they take money and they use it for very ungodly things. They take it and it goes to corruption, or they take it and it goes to uh, benefiting people that are, that are pursuing immoral things. Or they take the money and they, they actually use it to abuse their own people. And so I can see perhaps paying for roads and aqueducts, but I can't see paying money for those kinds of things. Do you think Caesar didn't do some of that? Caesar actually took some of the money that he collected in these taxes and he built temples where he demanded people go in and worship him. He took this money and he actually executed innocent people. In fact, two days after this event, the very soldiers who would nail Jesus to the cross were funded and paid for by the tax that Jesus himself is advocating. And Jesus knew that it was going to happen. He knew all of those things. Proverbs 8.15 says, By me kings reign and rulers decree justice. By me princes rule and nobles and all who judge rightly. The Lord claims His sovereignty over all princes, over all rulers who are established, and they all have their decree, their power to decree by Him. You say, yeah, but it's talking about those who do things justly and who do things rightly. Well, if you, if you go from Proverbs over to Daniel, Daniel writing about the wicked king Nebuchadnezzar reminds him that his own power came from God, that God was the one who instituted or established Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Daniel 4, verse 16, it says uh, down in that verse, when God was giving His judgment against uh, Nebuchadnezzar, He says, Let His mind be changed from a man's and let a beast be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the Holy One to the ends that the living ones may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. In other words, God enacted his judgment against Nebuchadnezzar because God was the one that Nebuchadnezzar answered to. And God will do that every time. Of course, Peter picks up on this, having learned the lesson, no doubt, from the Lord Jesus Christ. And he later will admonish those he's writing to in 1 Peter, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether to the emperor as supreme or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who are evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as free people, he says, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Don't rally under the banner of liberty and freedom and then use that to oppose the very governments that God has established. And of course, we know over in the book of Romans, chapter 13, Paul takes up this issue not only of governing institutions, but of taxes. 
And he says in Romans chapter, th- uh, chapter 13, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists God. And those who resist will incur judgment. And he goes on to say that the rulers and the emperors and the governors, he says, are God's servant for your good. If you do wrong, be afraid, for he doesn't bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on wrongdoers. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. He says in verse 7, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Where do they learn this? They learn this from Christ. These are Caesar's. He minted the money He put it into circulation. He established the medium of exchange. And now, having asked for a portion of it back, it belongs to him. He is owed it. Not only that, Jesus says, you pay back to God the things that are God's. Interesting how Jesus changes their question here. They ask the question as an either-or They ask the question really as an or. Do we pay taxes or do we not? Jesus rephrases it as an and. You pay taxes and you pay back to God. These things are not in competition, he's saying. You have framed these up as separate spheres. Or they're operating somehow in competition with one another. But in fact, they're all the same sphere. And so you can, on one hand, pay taxes to Caesar, this ungodly ruler who is creating all kinds of chaos in the lives of people, and you can give back to God, and all of it is according to the will of God. And all of it is in recognition of the fact that by God's decree, these governments have given certain benefits They're imperfect, sure, all of that is true before the kingdom. Do they operate sinfully? Yes, because they're fallen men, but they're still decreed by God. And so you now operate under the decree of God. You pay back for those benefits that come to you by God's decree. And at the same time, you recognize that God himself has been generous and kind and beneficial to you. And so you don't begrudge either paying your taxes or paying your tithes. You give back because you recognize that you have received. What Jesus is really getting at here is what is behind these guys' question. And it's what's behind every person who objects to paying their taxes or paying their tithes or their offerings. It is their own selfish greed. That's what it's about. They want all of their money for themselves. They believe it is their morally justified right to claim all of their money for themselves. Or to keep control of it at the very least. 
Not to give it for the common benefit of others and not to give it even to God. In fact, this is what Jesus tells us about the Pharisees in Luke 16, 14, that they are lovers of money. That was one of their fundamental problems. They phrased all of these questions in religious terms or moral terms, but really what they were all about was figuring out a way to continue to indulge their own flesh with as much of their own money as they can, but they didn't want to admit it. The real reason behind their question was their own greed. They were some of the biggest materialists around. They wanted to present themselves as concerned with high-minded questions and ultimate, ultimate questions about God's law and about theology, making all of it sound like they were upholders of righteous principles. But they were hypocrites. They were hypocrites. They did not understand that not only did they not own anything, God had given them everything as a stewardship, but by His decree, they were obligated. They were obligated to pay back to the governments that God had established and to give back to God Himself. You know, ultimately, these guys, like everyone else who's always resisted taxation systems or people who have always resisted giving to religious purposes, at the heart of it all was lack of gratitude. They're just ungrateful. They complain and they talk about all the abuse and the fraud and all that other stuff, but at the end of the day, they're ungrateful. They cannot muster within themselves an expression of gratitude for how the Lord has granted to them to live in a civilized society through governments. And they struggle to even acknowledge the unspeakable benefits that have come to them from God's common grace. And so they resist. They resist. Well, these guys have no answer for any of this stuff. They're caught because Jesus' argument is impeccable. It's irrefutable. And so when they hear it, they marvel. Probably not in the positive sense. They're, they're marveling maybe in a more negative sense. They're dumbfounded by this. And they left him and go away. They're the same way that every hypocrite will be whenever they face God in judgment one day. They will be silenced They will be exposed. They will be unmasked. And yet they will have nothing to do but to marvel at the majesty of the very God that they have been trying to push away, to hide from their whole life. That's what the Savior does, though. With simple truth, statements of truth. He unmasks all of your lies, all of your duplicity, all of your falsehoods. He unmasks all that. And when you stand before Him in judgment one day, the going away will be an eternal going away. It'll be an eternal departing. You will depart from His presence and you will go into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
The sad thing is that they had right in front of them the very teacher of truth. If they would have just actually believed the words that they said, if they would have actually believed that Jesus only speaks the truth and that He is always true, if they would have only put their trust in that, they wouldn't have faced judgment. Same is true for you. Right here from this very passage of Scripture, you're hearing, you're seeing on display the majesty of the Lord. All you have to do is believe. To finally drop all of your hypocrisy, all of your pretense, all the games and the shows that you're putting on for everybody around you, just drop all of that stuff and bow before the Lord and Savior. And say to him those very words. Everything you say is true. You say that. You confess your sins. You ask the Lord for forgiveness. And he gives you the right to become his child. If you're here this morning. You've never done that. If you're here this morning. And all you've done is what these guys have done. You just put on the show. I want to challenge you. Don't leave here today in that same condition. Do not leave here continuing the empty games. Today is the day of salvation. Father, we are grateful for this reminder and this picture of our Savior and His wisdom. We pray that You would give us the kind of gratitude, the kind of godly perspective that looks around us and is overwhelmed not only by Your kindness in our life, but even by the common grace of civilization and and government, those are gifts from you as well. And yes, Lord, they are fallen and they are marred because of our sin. But it will not be that way forever. We know that you are returning and you will establish your kingdom and we will all live in its glory. In the meantime, Lord, we accept your statements about us and about this world. We know that it continues to groan as it groans under the weight of sin. And yet let us not be drawn into the ingratitude, into the ungodly complaining. But as Peter says, let us live our lives in such a way as to silence the arguments of foolish men. Help us to live with grateful hearts, with submissive hearts to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.